radio station XITM is on the air. station XITM, broadcasting to you over the internet from way down south, where every other Sunday evening you can follow the amazing journey of James LaGrange, Alastair Strange, Penthesilea Shaggy Mane, and friends as they investigate a manuscript presented to D.I. LaGrange in the Solomon Islands. Its title, Investigationes Theologicae Mundora. James, tell us how you came to acquire this manuscript. Right, Fred. Well, I was in the Solomon Islands. I had a long overdue leave and wanted to get far off the grid. I was on an old fishing boat exploring outer islands along the slot. That's what New Georgia Sound was called in World War II. Japanese warships traversed it to resupply their troops on Guadalcanal. I was diving, doing some fishing. We were heading back from Bougainville, past Vela La Vela, through Blackett Strait, a winding course plied by this 90-year-old 40-foot fishing boat. It laid in at anchor off Blue Beach on Tulagi. I swam ashore. The beach was littered with wood and rusting iron. Beyond the beach, an escarpment of dense jungle rose abruptly from the sea. That's what Marines faced August 7, 1942. They landed on Blue Beach and were ordered to climb straight up nearly vertical root and vine covered cliffs. The enemy was entrenched along the central ridge of the island. The Marines moved up, then southeast to Hill 281 where 307 Japanese soldiers were massacred. They preferred to die rather than be taken prisoner. 45 American troops also died. I could see large pockmarks in the basalt cliffs made by bombardments from US ships offshore. The Seabees had built a road of sorts. It cut through a small hill to reach an existing marina which Americans used to repair destroyers and other vessels with their bows blown off. Guadalcanal had no natural harbor, so Tulagi served that purpose. Walking along the road now, I saw primitive thatched huts. One was a school with little kids peeking out of the doorway. I passed by rusting, derelict fishing boats. Canoes like pirogs carved from logs, one evidently seaworthy enough for two men to be paddling across the white-cap-filled sound. On the road I saw what looked like splotches of blood. It was red sputum, excretions from chewing beetle nuts, a sign that the marina warned against spitting beetle juice. 
Then, at the jungle's edge, I stopped before a small tin roof structure. The mountains of the Florida islands rose behind in a mist-shrouded cluster. A sign read, Christ the King Cathedral, Tulagi Parish, Diocese of Central Solomons. I cautiously entered the chapel. The curate was hard at work. He was examining this tattered manuscript. He said the document gave descriptions of vastly different worlds people experienced. The differences were based on what people found to give meaning to their lives, on the foundation or ground of their existence, what they took as reality. Perhaps he thought this was what people believed an idea like God to mean. So different worlds were based on conflicting concepts of God. The Reverend Reginald Askewthwaite wasn't sure if it made sense. Anyway, he was changing posts. New duties would consume all his time, nothing left for theological speculation. So hearing I once read theology at university, the Reverend Askewthwaite graciously offered me the manuscript for inspection. See if its examples from the history of religious institutions are consistent with the beliefs of ordinary individuals, he said. Are there fundamentally different ways of experiencing the world? So God then means something different in each person's own world? Are some ideas self-defeating, unlike our marvelously rational Holy Trinity? Well, I stifled a hack of skepticism in my throat, but we agreed to meet in two years to discuss what I found. Sir James, you brought this tattered manuscript home from the Solomon Islands. Author unknown, identified only by initials neither you nor the Reverend Askewthwaites could read. And one other thing you brought, a scrap of paper called into an old whiskey bottle the curate found along Blue Beach. Was it a guide to the manuscript? The paper in the bottle contained the following verse written in Tertsurima, entitled, A Traveler's Feet. I will read it to you. Far beyond the middle of the journey of one's days, a traveler came upon the darkened shore, through sinuous paths now forever lost among its waves, where no beacon brightly shone above the barren moor, nor stairs to climb the celestial realm, no traveler, no one, none at all could ever hope to heaven soar. Nor from the beach did ship appear with captain at its helm, nor devoted mate in coat of fleece. Cease what desperation did the traveler overwhelm, and darkness would not leave in peace. But suddenly there arose from waters deep through crashing surf sounds yet to cease, a good one awakened from eternal sleep. From elsewhere had the ancient sea god come, its way obscured by briny mists that crossed the ocean's sweep. From farthest east, Makira, the Leviathan, had swum to find the traveler near Tainik Hasolo, 
adrift where the end of days had once begun, upon leaving the black sands of Paratavovo, the place so very few had found beneath Kalambongara's great volcano. A gun was soft language made no sound, yet one human hearer, undeterred, unbound but to a single word, the traveler found that by one fate alone was the ore mine stirred by God. What was it like to hold God in mind? What did it mean had a Gunwa heard? For truly a God it would be surely odd had God no idea what God could mean, unless his trusted clod naught but crusted arthropod. Whose water wisdom rhyme of seaweed green in due time came upon the traveler's mind like visions made upon some empyrean screen of divinations from which one could not find the promise made during these days of war by any god should it ever be so kind to warn one poor traveler upon this darkened shore that even fate gives no escape from evermore on the back of the paper was also penciled the following that seemed connected with the manuscript. It said, One might say these investigations are about the possibilities of phenomena, those meeting their promise, those measuring its limits. We draw clues from how expressions of experience have been used, asking whether the proposed reality can be lived or can its inconsistencies not be overcome? In the end, we seek criteria that we belong to the universe, that we are not alien, that its structure allows moral purpose. Perhaps you listening in have already asked questions like these. What do you hold in mind coming to terms with ultimate reality? What are the contradictions in your experience? Does moral purpose mean the same for you as what it means for me? What tells us it means the same? If language cannot tell us, does moral purpose in life come to naught? Well, who are our fellow travelers? You've already met Detective Inspector James LaGrange. Like his name said, Jimmy always asks, what is the state of the system? What is its dynamic? Especially a system that includes its ultimate ground of being and meaning. Can the ground of being interact with us? Alastair Strange, his boss, the very formal Chief Constable Strange, always wears his uniform stickler for details and procedures one of Jimmy's failings. Alistair speaks with a profound voice about the moral condition of humankind. Penthesilea Chagamine, distaff member of the group, but nothing distaff about the beautiful Pentha, female reincarnation of the Amazonian warrior queen who fought for Troy, was killed by Achilles who then fell in love with her. Pentha reminds us feminine deities are superior members of the pantheon who control by force as well as beneath the sheets.
and Father Martin, 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 the ever-persistent Catholic priest, always looking for simple ways of thinking about things. Let's not overthink it, he says. The Father Three Martins thinks philosophy originated with St. Thomas Aquinas. Martin's parents liked his family name, so they gave it to him twice. Then came time for his saint name at confirmation, and Grandfather Martin chose St. Martin, and so he is Martin, Martin, Martin. Easy to remember, the Holy Trinity of Martins. Rabbi Rachel Rhodes, originally Rachel Rosenblatt, the kids tease that Rosenblatt goes black, so she shortened the name to Rose. She has Martin, Martin, Martin's sworn enemy. Rabbi Rose advises about the ancient Israelites. As one of the first Jewish women rabbis, she holds no truck with only male priests representing religious bodies. She says, you represent a religious body? Look at this body here. Sometimes she sides with Penta, sometimes not. Her zafted figure cuts its own path. And then Dr. Theodore von Ostrin from the Institute, the authority on all matters scientific, including theoretical models and hypotheses. When pressed about which institute Dr. Van Ostrin mumbles something about the, the Blanc Institute. Does he mean the Planck Institute, as in Max? With a heavy German accent, one is never quite sure. Theodore means gift of God and points to absolute authority, in his own mind at least. He is always addressed as Dr. Van Ostrin, mostly at his own implicitness. Sir James, Tell us what your investigation of theological investigations of worlds is about. Right, Fred. The manuscript begins asking this question. How does our picture of the world rise? For world, he uses Welt in German. What is its foundation from what ultimate ground of being and meaning does our world emerge? How do we hold such an idea in mind? This is asking about how people perceive basic reality. Perhaps Reverend Askew-Thwaites is right, that it is the kind of thing people are referring to when they speak of God. Anyway, there are two basic responses to the question. If the answer is affirmative, that there is some meaningful foundation to the world, one is naturally led to wonder what is the nature of its being? What kind of being is it? If the response is negative, if you cannot show a coherent foundation to the world, then how do you distinguish world from formlessness, from undifferentiated chaos? In fact, this was a concern in perhaps the oldest written creation myth, Enuma Elish from ancient Mesopotamia. Before the first gods were even born, primordial existence was a featureless, unintelligible void, undifferentiated water, 
a swirling chaos until a yawning fissure, a chasm, interrupted the void to separate waters into sweet and fresh, to separate heaven and earth. This was an early attempt by humans to come to terms with living in a potentially alien universe. They faced the possibility that without any rational foundation, in the end the world might not be any different from chaos, perhaps just chaos in another form. Okay, but now the bugger reloads the gun. If you believe there must be some rational foundation to the world, a further question arises. Is the world a shared world, a shared welt? Is existing objective reality agreed upon? Or are there multiple worlds, multiple phenomenal environments in which each living organism has its own individual reality, what he calls its umwelt? In this case, each world is defined by, but also limited by, an organism's particular sensory and cognitive apparatus. From that standpoint, there must be many worlds, umwelten in the plural, because each organism's world is necessarily different to varying degrees. Think about what that means for us as human beings. If my world is fundamentally different from your world, perhaps humans have evolved to a level of complexity where different cultures live in different worlds. But as cultures themselves become fractured, individuals within them perceive different realities. We presume a shared world. It is the basis of ordered society, the basis of science, belief in the laws of physics, belief in certain universal ethical principles. This faith is a kind of promise that there exists a rational world which is shared, available to common human understanding. Is that promise fulfilled by any ultimate ground of being and meaning? If the idea of a shared foundation to the world is self-defeating, how is reality intelligible? If there is no objective reality you and I can share, Fred. Indeed, James. Right, Fred. So the manuscript talks about worlds, plural, and presents five different worlds based on human religiousness. It says five is simply within the range of different concepts, say from four to seven, people can hold in mind at once to make comparisons. So how are these worlds related? Well, some have proposed theories of progressive development modeled on biological evolution, leading from primitive beliefs to a kind of ideal theology to the best possible adaptation to the world, religiously speaking. Well, biological evolution can be viewed in some respects as progressive. Species evolve to greater levels of complexity within the same species. But the mechanism of evolution is still largely random with the emergence of traits both adaptive and maladaptive to various material and environmental conditions. Instead, 
In the manuscript, we are invited to think of different religious worlds as like phase transitions, the way the world changes under different material or cultural or climatological conditions. So the ground of reality can no longer be spoken about in the same way. Think of how phase transitions are treated in thermodynamics and physics. These are changes among different physical states or phases of the same substance. Now apply this to religious phenomena. There exists a common nexus of human concerns, the same basic anxieties about life, one's hopes and fears, but they are experienced under vastly diverse conditions, politically, culturally, materially, environmentally, technologically, and so forth. So they produce correspondingly different pictures of the world, of reality. There is a family resemblance with transformations in cosmological models tracing the history of the universe through its various phases. We speak of the same universe in the sense of its having certain basic constituents throughout, consistent with how particles interact in accordance with unified gauge theories of electroweak and quantum chromodynamic or QCD interactions. But the same universe appears altogether different depending on when it is examined on which temporal phase of its existence. Imagine you are the same universe. You begin as an infinitely dense and hot singularity in which your forces, excepting gravity perhaps, are united. Within 10 to the minus 36 seconds, you immediately undergo a cosmic inflation by a factor of 10 to the 25th power. What follows is that you become the nuclear fire of a quark-gluon plasma. You cool sufficiently to allow atomic bondings, nucleosynthesis. All of this occurs within the first few minutes of your existence. Then, as the last plasma scatters, you see the emergence of light. You cool further, forming stars and galaxies. But they refuse to stay put and you proceed into an expanding space doomed to death in cold emptiness. You are the same universe, but radically not the same universe, depending upon when we are looking at you. Phases of religious worlds may be successive or non-successive. One sees successive phase transitions of religious worlds in cultures that experience forced upheavals. For example, like the indigenous culture of these very Solomon Islands. Religiously, it was a culture that had previously recognized the reality of a multiplicity of divine beings, of various gods and animating spirits. But in the 19th century, it underwent colonization and commensurate missionary efforts by technologically more advanced civilizations. The result was that its earlier foundational beliefs were replaced. Its religious world was transformed. The culture is now 92% Christian. 
And that culture is undergoing increasing secularization. The deepest worry of Investigationes Theologicae Mundorum is this. Perhaps there is no single foundation holding the universe together, no primordial being in whatever form, no single cause of its existence, no purpose for its existence. An individual's religious world is a consequence of the full range of variable human experience. Each world is therefore a reaction to the conditions of existence of different times and places. There is no one ideal theology, no necessary product of just one primordial singular being, like the creator God of Judeo-Christian and Islamic scripture, or the first cause, prime mover, intelligent designer of Western philosophy. Those two concepts don't even appear to refer to the same thing, nor do the analogs of singular beings in non-Western religions, Brahman in Hindu traditions, Tao of the Chinese sage Lao Tzu, the supreme spirit of nature found in indigenous mythology, Manitou in Algonquin, the creator Odulamare of the Yoruba of West Africa. This manuscript considers the widest perspective, all societies, industrial, agricultural, hunter-gatherer, advanced and non-advanced, individuals as well as institutions. Different cultures and histories produce significantly different concepts of ultimate being. They produce fundamentally different worlds. So what is your thinking on this, James? Well, historically, human beings probably began thinking of concepts like God, not as singular, but as a multiplicity of beings. Humans found themselves inhabitants of what felt like an enchanted universe of many levels of worlds. Existence included diverse spirits and ephemeral beings of many modes, gods and gauntlets, heroes and ancestors, metapersons of all sorts. Human beings may wrestle with similar problems, but they come up with different pictures of the world nonetheless. So think of these investigations as thought experiments. You rack your brains about the unanswerable and discover new possibilities. There have been many thought experiments throughout history, philosophical puzzles from A to Z, Avicenna's floating man, Zeno's paradoxes of motion, Chinese warring states thinker Hui Shi worried about whether there are feathers in an egg and how a white dog is black. But here's one thought experiment you may already have wrestled with. How did the world come into being? You begin with descriptions of how the world is now and then ask what conditions cause those effects. So you work backwards, proximate causes to antecedent causes. How far back can the chain of antecedent causes go? Forever? Can it go back infinitely far without end? 
Some say yes, just as long as each and every member of the causal regress is explained. Against this, others argue the regress is never fully explained until there is an explanation for the series as a whole. Perhaps the explanatory cause must stand outside the conditions of space-time where members of the series live. Perhaps the initiating cause of the series is self-explanatory, a necessary being, for example, one that cannot not exist. But even here, the question of what counts as an explanation may remain. Maybe nothing counts as an explanation. The Solomon Islands manuscript isn't about paradoxes for their own sake, but it realizes that concepts functioning like God invite paradoxes. Why? Because these concepts depend on including contraries in order to be meaningful. They are unusual concepts that support contradictories. And this has to do with contradictory conditions we all experience in our lives. We need spiritual and religious concepts attempting to explain them, or if not explain them, then come to terms with the contradictories of experience. For example, the singular finality of death against infinite possible interpretations of its meaning. Come to terms so we may live our lives. The manuscript entertains suppositions it calls possibilities of experience. Suppose, for example, we ask, what would be the advantage of a singular cause for the existence of everything? What is its promise in a way that allowing all existence to arise from a multiplicity of divine causal agents does not? Well, having a single primordial act essential to establishing the created world leads the mind to think of something that acts in the way we think of one another as individuals who act, individuals with intentions. And so we locate the possibility of the meaning of human existence in some space that, at least from a human perspective, has purpose, because it then can be understood as a deliberate act. Furthermore, we make it the act of an infinitely wise and powerful and beneficent divine being. Because such a theology asserts that a coherent, divinely created world is an intrinsically good world. Such intentionality is best described to a singular existing being rather than to a potentially chaotic collection of them. So there arises within the idea of a singular divine being, the very necessity for a created world. This appears to be a good thing, but it also raises problems. How account for the plenitude of disruptions to that created world? The fortuitous unfairness of innocent suffering from disaster and destruction in the created order itself, what theologians call natural evil, Historically, to many, these problems have appeared insurmountable. It produces atheism on the grounds of moral outrage, as it did for Dr. Ryu in Camus' novel La Peste, The Plague. 
And there are worries beyond wondering if the concept of a creator provides a rational picture of reality. One still wants to know of precisely what reality consists. These are foundational issues. What is quantum physics ultimately about? What is the nature of the most basic constituents of reality? Are they actual subatomic particles? Are the ultimate constituents fields of forces? Are there no ultimate entities at all, but only abstractions in which reality is reduced to properties of things? Or described in terms of relations among entities? So there is an overarching attempt to determine whether any metaphysical concept can be revelatory of truth or is self-defeating. Sometimes theological claims look like scientific assertions. For example, the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing. It is specifically articulated in the Judeo-Christian tradition. There are analogs in accounts of physical systems that employ concepts of emergence or that see the universe as self-creating from nothing. We've seen one theological purpose of creatio ex nihilo is to support the inherent goodness of creation. But might one argue that the claim from nothing is false because it is inconsistent with creation's necessary origin from something, from that which comes from the creator, whether it be his divine breath or a logos principle of intelligible thought well, suppose you try to avoid that dilemma by proposing two senses of being, material existence and whatever makes up divine existence. Well, apart from the obvious equivocation, even if divine existence were non-material by definition, one is still left with the Parmenidean dilemma that ex nihilo nihil fit, which seems to render the doctrine self-defeating. Do things fare any better from scientific cosmologies that support a universe self-creating from nothing? In physics, for example, the principle of conservation of energy demands constant total energy of isolated systems. We treat the universe as a whole, as such a system. This is one hypothetical assumption of cosmology's standard model. The idea that the amount of energy in this universe minus gravity must be exactly zero appears to allow that matter could be created from nothing through vacuum fluctuations in a zero energy universe empty of matter. Under such conditions, physicists like Lawrence Krauss and Stephen Hawking have defined nothing in a way to constitute a particle-less but intrinsically unstable quantum vacuum. But against this, it's been pointed out that such a primordial universe presupposes the existence of quantum fields whose fluctuations create virtual particles in processes that obey the existing laws of physics. Such a universe is not really nothing after all. Strange here. I want to ask, where does one go from such dilemmas, morally speaking, 
Where does one go when the assessment of purpose in one's life now seems to rest on either a hopelessly inconsistent foundation or on no foundation whatsoever? I see that thought experiments make these dilemmas visceral, points of irreducible necessity in one's life. But to me, this obligatory necessity reveals the manuscript's underlying moral dimension. We see criteria that make human moral life possible. How do we exist in a universe that has its own frequently chaotic history? What is required entertaining specific religious beliefs and claims or not? You're right. That's exactly what's so intriguing. The manuscript speaks of a foundational concept that must have things both ways. It must include contrary attributes, even at its own peril. From the ground of all being and meaning, from God in whatever form, there necessarily emerges a world of goodness and beauty where evil and ugliness must also have their home. For that reason, the very idea of something fundamental which underlies reality must embody those contradictions in order to be meaningful. Do you see that, Alistair? Fred. You mean it's like you gotta be bad just to have a good time? Not at all, because reality's ground of being has its contradictions simultaneously and eternally. It's as if contradictions are built into its nature, unless it is simply without a nature, in which case all the contradictions of human experience only exist against a void. Well, folks, we're just about out of time. But we'd like to remind you that you're listening to the brightest spot on your radio dial. Tune in every other Sunday while James and his friends explore this mysterious work. So mind how you go. The next episode begins with questions about meaning itself. Radio station XITN signing off the air.